starts. <laughs> okay, hello everyone and welcome to A Woman's Place. Um, today we have a very special guest for you, uh, which Sarah is going to introduce. Hi everybody, welcome back and today we are delighted to be interviewing Claude Finn, who is a graduate of UCC, UCD and the European School of Journalism in Paris and has worked for the Irish Examiner, the Sunday Independent and the Irish Independent as a freelance writer and an editor. She has a particular interest in history and archaeology and in 2019 her book Through Her Eyes, A New History of Ireland in 21 Women was published and we're so pleased to talk to her today about her experience of collecting Irish women's stories from the Bronze Age to the Modern Age. So so you're very, very welcome, Cloda. Good morning, Sarika. Thank you very much for that lovely introduction. <laughs> I hope I can live up to it in some way. Um, I watched a previous lecture that you did um, and I just picked out one quote that you had and it was, history without women is only half a history. And I think that that is so true. It really um, is. I saw another quote that you had from Virginia Woolf of, um, for most of history, Anonymous was a woman. And I think that through your book and through your Twitter feed, where you chronicle Irish women from all walks of life and periods of history, is such an exploration into parts of history that have been forgotten. And I think for some of them definitely would have been completely forgotten only for your research. So thank you so much, first of all, for all of the work that you must have put into this. Thank you, Sarika. And, and you're right. I mean, I've always been interested in history and archaeology. But when you look back, I suppose as a woman, I, I wondered what it would be like if I was in the Doctor Who TARDIS, you know, and went back in time. And when I went back to try and find out what that might be like, the first port of call was the history books. And they were so sadly one-sided. Um, it was the story of men, and in particular, powerful men. I mm. mean, I'm very interested in kind of history from the bottom up, the ordinary men and women um, who did so much, you know, these people who walked this way before us. Mm. And I started to try and find the missing women, really. And that led me to this project. And I suppose... The one thing that really hit me is I did not want to tell the story of what women could not do mm -hmm. because we know they couldn't vote, they couldn't work, we had the marriage ban here um, and there were so many kind of negative stories. But when you look back and ask the question, what can women do? If you go right back to the beginning of, of the Stone Age actually here you find that I love the the um to misquote the rhyme you know there were thinkers toilers soldiers and sailors and I found many more besides you know pioneers. and spies and spies, spies yeah. yeah right in the 14th 15th century you'll have Irish spies and double agents and messengers and uh, scientists and writers and innovators and power brokers and painters and I started um, I wanted to do a kind of a history from the very beginning the stone age the first farmers right through to the digital age you know and pick 21 women that would give us open a little aperture into what it was like and what was possible so this I suppose the book is is the story of what was possible in women's lives. And I suppose some of the women that are in it, you know, would be quite exceptional. But that led me on then to 
all the women that went before us. There are incredible stories. Just to tell you one, I happened to be at Johnstown Castle um, the day before yesterday. It's just open. It's just had a big refurbishment and it's opened. And there's some very strong women there. And one of them, uh, Jane Grogan Forbes, she actually won the castle in a horse race against her sister. <laughs> and uh, there was a row about who would inherit. And they... She was only 14 years old and she sat up on her horse and raced against her sister and won a castle and an, an estate and became a very wealthy lady. Yeah. And I think that's a great story. Yeah. But we don't know about her, you yeah. know. So there are, when you look, there are so many women. And I suppose that's that's what I'm trying to do in the Twitter, light, Twitter feed is just shine a light on mm -hmm. these wonderful undertold stories. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Uh, go on Christina no, sorry no, no. I, I was just going to say like in in our in our podcast like we you know it's called a woman's place which is obviously after the the what's the article in the constitution yeah Sarka remembers the facts and I remember the vague <laughs> the vague sociological so, uh, um, uh, concept but uh, yeah what we wanted to do was like really insert women back into you know, look at women in history and, and um, like we did a recent series on like witches and the beginning of witch, witch hunting. And it was, you know, we, do, we, we couldn't even we, we couldn't even scratch the surface on this, honestly. And it was so interesting. And it was just one of these histories that I know that if as uh, as a teenager, I'd been learning about witches and what um, not just like, oh, women were burnt at the stake. Oh, it was terrible. You know, the actual history of it um about the you know women being outcasts that I would certainly have been so, so much more interested in in history as as a woman as a girl um than I was I was so obscenely bored in history class I didn't do history for a sec for my leaving cert but so much of what I do now in my life is read about what's going on and the history of the present moment and where that and where that you know um has its roots you know um you know so important to see what led to this this mm -hmm. didn't happen you know out of nowhere mm -hmm. i mean when you start to to dig back as you say sorica um you really see why we are where we are today mm -hmm. uh, it's very interesting you talk about the witches you know i remember we used to go out trick-or-treating and I, I had a witch's hat and you know i just i wonder if i would have a witch's hat had i known um sixty thousand women in europe kind of between the 15th and the 17th century um, were either drowned or burned at the stake and some men too you know and there was there was a whole book that, that's so better than the bible I think in the 15th in, in particularly in Germany where the Malfesis Malcarium yeah that's the very one yeah yeah where you could I it, it taught you how to identify a witch how to question a witch you know and um, these people i suppose it's just very interesting i suppose yeah how people were victimized and you can see that how that happens today as well you know it's very interesting exactly. very interesting history. so i suppose ready? my first i do have my questions, questions ready. Do you have questions ready girl go on <laughs> um so i suppose my first question would be kind of um 
where did your research take you, like physically take you to find these records and to find these? Because I noticed that in your previous lecture, you spoke a lot about letters um, and that an awful lot of your research was based on letters that women wrote. And I suppose that I'm, I'm wondering, where did it take you? How did you find them? Was it a very long and difficult process? And were there um, a few people that you just simply couldn't find any sources on that you would have loved to include but ended up not including? I'll answer the last question first. There is a judge in the first century and we have her name. And all I could find was a paragraph. And I would love to have known what it was like to be a judge in first century Ireland. Mm. But I would have had to go into fiction to, to find it. Um, so there would be some women that you just... That was that was um, very much part of... of the, shaped the women I found but it, it was we were talking earlier Christina was saying sometimes I find the women find you you know um mm. the first book I wrote was about Mary Elms and um she kind of found me uh the Smashing Theatre uh Smashing Times Theatre Company I got a press release from them about this woman Mary Elms we'll talk about her later and it said, you know, she was she was honoured in Israel and she had saved Jewish children from certain death in the gas chambers. And I went, why, why, why haven't I heard of this woman? So um, she certainly was on my list. Uh, after having researched her and finding out that her story was told in the archives and letters and photographs, um, I started to look at other letters and photographs and mentions and try to just flesh out the stories of this women that were a little bit below the radar and um, they kind of jumped out at me. I'm interested in archaeology and um, I read the report of the excavation report of um, Paolo Nebron Dolman in the Burn. Now that's kind of very specialist reading if you like, but that particular Dolman is um, probably one of the most photographed um, historical monuments, archaeological monuments in Ireland. Um, it's a very distinctive Dolman and it's in a very distinctive um, landscape. And I read a snippet that said one of the women buried there was 55 years old. Now to be 55 years old in the Stone Age um, that would be like the equivalent of being 120, 130, perhaps even 150 now. And I said, I want to find out about this woman. And um, so you start digging, literally. And then there's, there's one of the things that happened in the book is you do, there's a certain degree of serendipity. Because as I was researching her, a woman called Lara Cassidy, who's a geneticist um, in Trinity, was doing these really interesting DNA testing of ancient bones and it so happened that she had been to this um, grave so that cast a really interesting light we could for we could actually say this woman that that archaeology had fleshed out now we could say that actually if she were alive today she would look most like a, a Sardinian woman um, they could tell that from the DNA um, in the bones that was that are like five thousand years old, and I just thought that fascinating. So by taking so to answer your question, my research led me um, all over the place, and it led me 
to relatives, it led me to archives, it led me to letters. Often the story of women, particularly I suppose in the, in the modern period, is told in letters because at a certain point um, women, it wasn't deemed gentlewomanly to um, publish. So you have somebody like Lady Ranla, who is Robert Boyle, the father of chemistry. His elder sister is actually much more famous than he was um, in the 16th, 17th century. And we know about her because her letters survive. And they only survive because she was part of a powerful family. So that opens a little aperture. And, um, you know, you kind of follow the trail and you get what you can. Yeah, but as you say... There are some, sometimes the trail runs out, sometimes it leads to unbelievable discoveries. Um, one thing can lead to another. And when you put it all together, you know, you can get actually quite an exceptional uh, portrait. And that leads me on, actually, we're going to talk about Rohisha de Verden, mm -hmm. who was the only castle builder, only documented castle builder in the 13th century. Okay. <clears throat> Tell us all about her now. Yeah, and she jumped out at me as well because there's a fantastic story about her. If you come from Castle Roach in County Louth, she's very well known as Rose of the Rock. And she's known, often you find um, powerful women, they're cast as demons, you know, or they're... This woman was... Apparently, she built her castle in the 13th century, and then when the when it was finished, she threw the mason out the window because she didn't want her design to be replicated. This is the story that's told locally, and um, there's even a window in the castle is known as the murder hole. This is where this formidable woman woman threw out the mason. In some stories, actually, it's her husband, and the story goes that. Um, you know, if you're a bold child in County Loud, they'll say, you know, do this or Rose of the Rock will get you, you know. So she's cast as, as a, a wicked character. But when you start to scratch beneath the surface, there is a real woman there. And she, um, she um, was born around 1204. And it is historically attested that she built this incredible fortress um, in 12 around 1236 and it was noted even at the time that she had done something which none of her ancestors was able to do and when you look at the at the records actually now we don't know if she ever set foot in Ireland but she certainly was very active in the affairs of Ireland and there are historical references like I, I was very interested to find that she took the abbot of Mellifont to court she looked after her property, she looked after her proceedings, but it wasn't all fighting. I mean, she was a peacekeeper as well. And in 1235, she settled a long running dispute with Hugh de Lacey. Um, as so often happens, she only becomes into the record in relation to, to men. And she married Theobald Butler of Kilkenny in 1225. And what fascinated me was she kept her own name. Now, whether she did that, it, I don't know if that was a feminist thing to do. I think it had more to do the fact, to do with the fact that he had other children and she didn't want her considerable fortune. She was a wealthy woman to go to his children. So um, she kept her own name and she had five children. And just a very interesting 
point on that. It's kind of an interesting insight into childbirth in the 13th century. Um, the historian Gillian Kenny has said that around that time, uh, peasant women would, or you know, poorer women would have a child every second year. Whereas noble women tended, if you like, to, to pop them out every year. And part of the reason for that was they had wet nurses, whereas the peasant women breastfed their children, which I suppose um, helped to space them out. So Rohisha was, was very busy. She had five children in five years. And then her husband went off to battle and he died in 1230. But what's very interesting then is that Rohisha would have been a very wealthy woman at this stage. She inherited not only her husband's estates, or part of them, but also her father's estates. And at the time, um, the king, King King Henry III, you know, a wealthy widow like that, they'd want you to marry again. But she paid a huge fine. Now, I think it was 700 marks, which would be the equivalent. It would buy several horses, say. Um, she paid a fine so she would remain single, which is very interesting. So she became a femme soul, and that gave her the power to sign contracts and to keep her to buy and sell property. So here was this woman, like in the 13th century, who really wanted to be her own woman. She doesn't really appear in the historical record until she becomes a widow. And she's a very powerful widow, and she manages to inherit both from Strongbow and from her father. But she didn't marry again either because she wanted to keep her inheritance for her two children. And one of them, her son, died. But Isabel, her daughter, inherited. And she was in turn a very powerful woman. And she, it was said, you know, um, defended Kilkenny Castle against a siege. And she married, you know, um, William de Mar Marshall and... They were seen as a power couple, but he would have always said, I owe my my power and my place to her. So if you look back, you will find quite a few women who managed to, if you like, exploit or, um, you know, the power struggles of, of the exploit the situation of the day and hold on to money. I think they, they did it really for their own children. Um, so it's very interesting. So we have um, a Norman woman and now we're going to kind of move forward a good bit in history yeah. um, and we're going to speak about another another person. So, Christina, if you want to um, if you want to take over there. Yeah, we're going to talk about John Denise Moriarty and John Denise Moriarty. Cloda um, shared a little profile of John Denise Moriarty on Twitter and um, little did she know uh, that I had done a whole exhibition on John Janice Moriarty very recently for uh, Cork City Library and when you were talking there in the beginning um, about how um, women were not remembered by the history books it's through their letters when I tell you that how many letters that I read I mean she kept every single thing like the archive is extensive they there is so, so, so many letters. Like I read letters, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of letters from her. Um, and um, yeah, so I just thought that was so interesting. And I suppose like the, the kind of secret letters that women keep or it's like, yeah, it's your own record, even yourself, like 
myself sure I'm no I'm 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 not going to be written in history books but if you were to read about me you'd pick up a notebook you know you'd be like oh what was she like oh look at her notebook or whatever so um but Joan Denise Moriarty was um the first lady of dance they like to call her in um in Ireland she founded the national Irish National Ballet and uh Cork Ballet Company and several others as well like the Irish folk folk group um which which changed names and rebranded over time but um I saw in your comments actually that there was a man who said oh she was born in Mallow but she actually wasn't born in Mallow um there is some um there is some uh not controversy there's uncertain that's the word you got it in one uncertainty there's some uncertainty about her um her birth or where exactly she was born um and there's also a lot of contradictions over where she grew up so she even contradicts herself in like interviews that I have listened to um uh the in the in books that I've read about her they say she grew up in Liverpool she said she was in London she said she's in Liverpool another time um, she said she went to like Paris for three years when she was a teenager, but I'm not sure when, like, I, I don't know when exactly the timeline is, but her early life is, there's a, there, it, there's very little information about it, but she came to Ireland in the 1930s. Her father died when she was very young. She had a mother and two brothers. Her mother died when she was in her thirties as well. Um, so she was a very like solitary and lonely figure. She was, yeah, she was a very lonely woman. Like she, she was surrounded by people though. Like she was absolutely surrounded herself by so many people. Um, and she was re like beautiful and tall, like such a tall woman. So elegant. Yeah. Pictures of her. Yeah. Yeah. She like I I I don't mean to like I overly identify with her, but I definitely identified it with her because I'm really tall, and people always say, "Oh, you're so tall," and you're very like quite imposing looking, and people feel like the things that were said about John Denise Moriarty have definitely been said about me, like, "Oh, she's quite intimidating," you know, because of her height and and all this. Do people say that to you, Christina? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Like uh, I'd be, but I'm not even that tall. I'm just taller than than most girls, and I'm taller than a lot of guys. But I'm not even that tall. I'm only five ten. Like I'm not that tall, but um, <clears throat> so. I suppose the enduring, the the amazing thing about Joan Denise Moriarty was like, she had incredible influence. um, And it's unclear to me how she like got all of this influence. She, she loved to say that the, she had no money. Like she loved to say she had no money. And I think she didn't have a lot of money, but like she came back to Ireland and was like, I'm going to set up a ballet school with no money. Like, sorry, girl, if you were working class, you would be absolutely not going near ballet. You know what I mean? It's just like, she's like, oh, money. I don't know what money is. What's money? I don't know. I've never seen it. I've never touched it. Money. So there had to have been some money for her to have notions in the 1930s about setting up a ballet school. 
girl. She started in Mallow of all places. I know. Yeah, she did. Yeah. You'd have to have some vision to come into Mallow in the 1930s and say, let's set up a ballet school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She's not from fucking like a farm in Kerry. Do you know? She made herself out. Like she, I, I just used to be howling and Helen McGonagall, shout out to Helen. She used to be, um, who... I should mention it was the one who commissioned the the um uh the exhibition and who was an excellent mentor the entire time and uh she used to be howling because I used to be making fun of her for for like telling everyone that she had no money um but um yeah I suppose the 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 greatest thing about John Denise Moriarty was like this influence that she seemed to craft um she 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 and I don't know how she did it like she she was able to put together schools and a ballet group and a national ballet group get funding from the government time and again in a time in Ireland when the like of it wasn't even you know what I mean like the the extraordinary she must have the attitude determination really very determined single-minded lady was she yeah yeah very much so she used she said in her speech in 1986 at her um this is your life dinner that they threw for her um which is uh which was lovely everyone got up and said really nice things about her but she said um my one burning desire to to was this vision of a ballet in in ireland and it was a single mindedness that she pursued it for sure. And it was um, she took these girls who'd never been across the county border to France. She took them to Germany. She put on ballets. Um, they went to New York. They went to London. Like, you know, it was uh, the, the people who speak about her talk about how she brought like such color. That was one word that was actually used again and again. Color into their lives when like she, they really didn't have um anything um at all but yeah I just I suppose I was the thing that was the most formidable about her was just this ability to get it done at a time that was just unbelievably oppressive and repressive in Ireland especially for women and she was a single woman all her life like she never got married um and I think yeah I think she was just an artist another thing Helen would like laugh at me as well for saying is that I used to always give out and I still give out about people using this phrase they're ahead of their time like they were ahead of their time and I believe that is such a stupid thing to be saying (laughs) because I think it's not they're not ahead of their time they just have they're just artists they just have a vision very good point yeah and I'm guilty of saying that myself you know and on that it's people you know when people say in this day and age you would expect x to happen and when they look back they expect people to be backward or Mm -hmm. primitive Mm -hmm. i absolutely Mm -hmm. with that yeah Mm -hmm. if you if you do something different you're ahead of your time honestly though people five years ago could have been saying something and now that it's come through they're like god they were ahead of their time i'm like they're not ahead of their time they have they they can see visionaries visionaries yeah just listen like just listen it's like it's not they are they are not exceptional it's that their environment is so oppressive or it's so stuck um, you know, there's someone in in the mud uh, that they're they're moving. Everyone else is like, Jesus Christ, how is she doing that? It's like because, like, 
I can see it, but she she really saw what her vision so clearly, and then she, she was exceptional, though, mm-hmm. was she not? Absolutely, yeah, she was. She she was um she was taught by Marie Lam- Rambert in the uh Rambert Ballet Company in London, um, but she was too tall because and, and she she, yeah, she was she said that didn't mm-hmm. she she said that um. She was too tall to become a professional dancer. Is that what she said? Yeah, her reason was, and um, it was like in her in her beautiful, like very posh voice. Um, she said, "At that time, the men were very tiny, and you couldn't have a, a big, tall female dancer and a small, tiny man." So that and so Marie Rambert, you say to her, "Get out of my sight. There's too much of you there." So there was a lot of like. She she suffered. I think because of her height, she suffered a lot of like, um, maybe body, uh, body issues just because it it prevent her body brought so much. I think to her in that like she was physically imposing and she got re- great respect from people, even men, you know. But at the same time, it restricted her from doing the uh what she really wanted to do, which was ballet. But at the at the, like she created artists and she created art not just she wasn't just a dancer not that there's such a thing as just a dancer but she she created whole swaths of ballets and and performances so yeah she was a musician as well i was uh, fascinated to mm-hmm. read she she played the bagpipes the war pipes yeah yeah war pipes she played um the war yeah <laughs> yeah she played it um for alois fleischmann um in I think it was the 1950s that's how they met he was like here will you play some war pipes for me there girl and she was like yeah no problem will you will you play that will you get the orchestra to play for the ballet and he agreed and that's how that relationship started um yeah all their lives yeah 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 all their lives um and what else have I to say and power and influence as well but he helped her along, didn't he? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I don't know, is there anything else to be said about Joan Denise Moriarty? Except that every anyone can go read the archive in the library, in no in Rory Gallagher Music Library. And Oh fantastic. Yeah, Rory Gallagher Gallagher Music Library. Yeah. And uh if you're a dancer and you want to learn the history of dance in Ireland, like there are some amount of newspaper clippings and um and letters and you know scores and different things in the archive and it's free to access them and you can go access them whenever you want but um yeah it's wonderful that it's all there christina is mm-hmm. because too often things get lost or they're scattered to the four winds it was great that um something was done with it as well you know a lot of times they they're held and there's nothing um, there's nothing done with them. And I think her story is just, it's a story of just, I, I like, it's a story of, of, I suppose it's a story of art and it's a story of perseverance. Um, but unfortunately she also had to sacrifice so much for it. Um, including her health. Uh, she, she really restricted her eating. She was a tiny woman. Yeah. And, um, uh, I should tell this part of it. I should have uh, not to ramble on. <laughs> Sorry. 
Um, but so when it came to the exhibition, I wanted to concentrate on her and not on like, not necessarily like on all of her achievements, but who she was as a person. And then the, what the, the, the extremities would be of what she accomplished. But, um, I started and I ended the exhibition with this, um, with this quote from WB Yeats. It goes, O chestnut tree, great rooted blossomer, are you the leaf, the blossom, or the bowl? O body swayed to music, O brightening glance, how can we know the dancer from the dance? That po- that poem was quoted by Peter Brinson, and it, and his report was named after that. It was called the Dancer and the Dance, and he. Peter Brenson was a man who came along, who was commissioned by the Arts Council in 1985 to do a report into um, our, our dance in Ireland. And because of his report, they uh, that that said that Joan Denise Moriarty should be replaced. She quit. And within five years, the National Ballet of Ireland was done away with. It was gone. And it was my whole thing was like he read that poem, read that piece. It's like the dance, the dancer and the dance, which is what was the big realization that that swept over me when I was doing the exhibition was like, there's no such thing as a dance. There's just the body. There's just human beings doing movements. So you can't have a dance without the dancer. And he, he, Brinson used that poem and then he extracted the dancer, John Denise Moriarty, out of the dance the ballet and then it all fell apart because of course you can't have a dancer without the dance and then the rage rising up in me yeah it was just it was it was it it was horrible it was uh charles haw he was had just become um uh taoiseach no he was the taoiseach and his uh, his government you know with their cuts and ireland was living beyond their means or whatever previously to that it had been um it had been Jack Lynch, who had been very favourable to the ballet and who had given them a lot of funding and who loved the ballet. So that'll just show you like the differences, the differences in um, leadership and the kind of interests that people have in power. Um, that... That's so interesting, mm-hmm. Christina, because you see how a one person's idea, you know, can seep into policy and can have such <clears throat> devastating effects. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's not just one person, but it's like the head, you know, the head of the snake is going to, you know, it's the, yeah. Fish rots from the head. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So that's Joan Denise, I think. I don't know if I gave a good overview of her there. Lovely overview. But um, you definitely did. (laughs) I learned loads there now because I (laughs) wouldn't have known very much about her at all at all. Well done, you. That's fantastic work. Thank you. It's funny she found you. Yeah, she did. She did. did. Yeah. (laughs) So you spoke about Mary Ellen's earlier, um, Claudia, a little bit. And I'm just wondering, kind of, when did you hear the first kind of whispers that a woman who existed, who was like the Irish Oscar Schindler, kind of, how did you, how did you hear about it first? Because what I remember was um, never having heard of her. And then suddenly she was kind of everywhere. And um, T.G. Cahar did a documentary on her and then RTE. And then there was a bridge named after her. And it all seemed to happen very quickly. It's funny. If you know what I mean. Yeah. Sometimes it's kind of what we were talking about earlier. Sometimes a story is ready to be heard. And it was incredible because in September, 
2016, a number of things happened. I got a press release from Smashing Times Theatre Company who had a vignette on her in a, a lovely production they had about women in war. And she was one of them. And there was another woman who'd lived in Ireland. And at the time they thought that was Hetty Steinberg. They thought she was the only Irish uh, or, or person who'd lived in Ireland to be murdered in Auschwitz. There has since found three or four more. And um, Smashing Times, there were four other women in that. And I got the press release and I said, gosh, I, I haven't heard of this woman. Why not? So I wrote first a column. Then I wrote a very long feature on her. While I was doing that, I realised there is a huge archive in the American Quakers um, archive about her work. And I was put in touch with a man who'd done a lot of research and some of the people she saved. So that was that was kind of where I came at it. At the same time, a woman in Cork called Deirdre Waldron had heard about her. She had done a lot of work with Monsignor Hugh O'Flaherty, who would be very well known, and he had helped save children as well during um, the Second World War. And Deirdre nominated her for the Cork um, Women's Business Association. So she had heard of her separately. And in another strand, Paddy Butler was an Irish journalist, is an Irish journalist, and he had written about her in the Irish Times a number of years ago, actually, and nobody took any notice. But he was making a documentary all around the same time. So it really was as if her, it was the time for her story to be told. Um, I wrote a, a long piece for the Irish Examiner, and sort of on the basis of that, um, Gil, book, Gil um, Books asked me to write a book about her. So I started, I was given access thanks to a lovely man in England, a Quaker, who was hugely instrumental in bringing her story to life. So he gave me access to all the archives which tell the story of her life during World War II. So that's how I came to it. And um, just on the story of letters, she was a very, so as you say, there was this very private woman. Nobody knew anything about her in 2016. And then by 2019, there was a bridge named after her. And two of the people she saved traveled to Cork to pay tribute to her. So Mary Elms was born in Cork in 1908. And she could have had a very nice, comfortable life. Um, she was born into Black Rock and her family were really quite... Um, wealthy um, she studied and was uh, a, a scholar really she she had first class honours degree in French and Spanish in TCD she in Trinity she won a gold medal and um, then she won a scholarship to study in the London School of Economics she said herself later you know had she been alive now she would love to have been perhaps a diplomat and um, when she was in the London School of Economics she won another scholarship and ended up in Geneva in 1936. And I think myself that this shaped what she was to do later, because while she was there, the Spanish Civil War broke out and she was particularly interested in Spain and its people. And she was connected in London with a man called Sir George Young, who, when um, uh, Mal Malaga fell, he said, it is time to go and help the people of Spain because Franco and his forces are going to make many widows. And she initially travelled out to Spain with him 
for just five days. She wanted to volunteer and help the people of Spain. And I suppose it's a measure of the type of person and her own determination is that people were looking for doctors and nurses. You know, Mary Ellen's was a linguist and a scholar, but she could speak Spanish. So she must have persuaded them that she was of use. And she, in fact, was of great use because she very soon proved herself to be very able in kind of the theatre of war. She was a very good administrator, um, organiser, and she and um, Sir, Sir George Young, they travelled up the east coast, keeping ahead of Franco, Franco's forces, setting up fe feeding stations, hospitals. Um, they went into the front line and... They, if you like, even though she's well known now for saving Jewish children from the gas chambers, she did a huge amount of work to help um, people in, during the Spanish Civil War. Wow. So the question is then, how did she end up in mm -hmm. France saving Jews from being deported to Auschwitz? Mm -hmm. So she stayed, which is very, very like Miriam, she stayed at her station till the bitter end. And when it was no longer safe to stay there, um, she she followed the Spanish refugees over the border into France. And she saw that they were corralled behind barbed wires and put into these camps that we even see today. You see the way that um, you see it on the border of Poland and Belarus. You have these poor people stuck in awful situations. Um, while she was in, Sp in Spain, actually, her father had died she couldn't get home to the funeral so she arrived into France in 1939 and took a few weeks off to go back home to Cork and meet her mother who was a widow and her mother I suppose said oh look why don't you stay here and, and do something but she said I really want to help the people of Spain half a million people were now in the south of France and she applied this is how she got she applied to the Quakers um, to go back and work and that's how she got her job. And she went to Perpignan and very soon um, became the head of the delegation of the Quakers in the south of France. And then she found herself in the middle of a second world war. And soon there were refugees. There was the fall of, of France in 1940. And there were refugees coming from Belgium and all the northern Europe. There were eight million refugees on the move joining the Spanish refugees and it is around 1940 that you you start to see Jews and the Jewish people coming into the camps and around 40, 1942 you can tell the date exactly um, you have Hitler's final solution and Mary Ellis was working with two other organisations in the camp she was working for the American Quakers who were wonderful people who would help anyone in need of help there was the Red Cross and there was a French organisation called OSE and they realised in August um, 1942 that something horrible was happening that they were rounding up Jews and their children to take them away to the east they didn't exactly know what was going to happen but they knew it wasn't good. They thought they were going to be sent to uh, labour camps where death by starvation awaited them. In 1942, when Mary heard this, she filled up her car with children and she drove them to these colonies, they're called, or children's homes that she had set up along the coast. She had set up these places as kind of respite homes 
for children in the camps because conditions were so bad in the camps. She would take these children out to seven or eight homes where they would be fed and they would get medical care. That now was vital because she had, if you like, a series of safe houses. And there is incredibly a uh, written pencil note that exists that says when the first convoy was taken away, Mary Elms spirited away nine children. In all, Mary Elms and her colleagues saved an estimated 427 children from certain death from those camps. She also told her children that she had saved a family. She'd kept a, an Austrian family in her own flat in Perpignan. Um, she helped countless others by getting them papers and visas so they could get out of France uh, and away from the danger. So um, we don't quite know how many people she saved personally, but it certainly runs into the hundreds. So she was doing this, I assume, um, like the France was split into the Nazi controlled side and, and the kind of French Nazi sympathizer controlled yeah. side. Yeah. Um, so she, she was obviously doing this in defiance of um, of the Nazi state and, and of the Vichy state as well. But was there ever a time where she herself was in huge danger because of these works? Or was it a case that they kind of just turned a blind eye to what she was doing? Um, because they, they 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 had more important things to worry about, or Very how did that work? She, she was in Vichy, France, and in Vichy, France, you know, you, it was like a puppet state. You had people who turned a blind eye. You had others who actively collaborated, who actively collaborated with the Nazis, and then there were others who, like Maryams, they could see the danger and they actively risked their lives to save. Um, people from danger. It's very interesting because it changes. In 1940, the authorities of the Quakers say, we can't rock the boat. If we rock the boat and go against the authorities, we're going to be kicked out and then we can help nobody. But by 1942, things had changed and the Quakers said, people are in danger. We, can, we must do what we can to save them. So she did absolutely put herself at risk and even the the captain the, the the camp was french controlled but many of them turned a blind eye and actually helped and also in the institutions the vichy institutions um there are letters to show how they um told the volunteers when the next convoy was going um but still the work she was doing was very dangerous and when the convoys had all gone, about 2,100 adults and 171 children were all taken away, most of them to their death. When the, the camp was closed, um, Mary was still there and she was working in schools. And one day she, she would have had incriminating documents. Around February 1943, she, she just got this feeling and said, I, I better hide these documents. And days after that, the French the German security police knocked on her door and arrested her. And the story was that one of the guards' wives had um, spoken about her and given her up, if you like, to the, to the German police. And they had a big, long charge sheet of uh, 
distributing propaganda against the Reich and helping border crossings. Um, and she was put into jail for six months. She was in Toulouse and then she was transferred to a Gestapo-run prison in Paris called Fresnes. And many people did not come out of that prison. And I mean, she was in real danger there. She was 35 years old. She was in a cell with two other women. It was really cold. She kept a blanket from it. Um, she said that blanket saved my life. They didn't get enough to eat. She had an infection in her back. Her health was very bad. Also, um, her mother didn't know where she was. And she later told her children that she, she actually heard people being executed. Um, this, this will give you an idea, and um, we'll talk later about her mother, is that when her mother found out, her mother was a, a very strong woman, um, I kind of say black cat, black kitten, you can see from um, Elizabeth Elm's letter writing campaign, um, where Mary got her determination, but her mother wrote to everybody she could think of, she was well connected, wrote to the States, she wrote to the German ambassador of uh, Ireland and she managed to secure her daughter's release. It helped I suppose of course that Mary was an Irish citizen and Ireland was neutral but she was released from jail after six months and her mother hoped that she would come home or that she would go to the States but she put on her suit, she went straight back to work and she said oh well we all experienced inconveniences in those days didn't we as if nothing had happened. <laughs> Referring to being locked up in a Nazi prison as a as an inconvenience, inconvenience. is is just amazing. Um, I suppose the um the just to, to comment on on that the environment there is like the the kind of emotional and mental like anxiety and stress that probably what she was living with every day is. You know, in these these sorts of situations, it, the the political situation is not stable. It's very uncertain. It can be very changing. You know, uh, your actions day to day could one day might get you in trouble, the next day may not. Um, and it's like living with that kind of stress is is in its own. It's one of the reasons that many people don't take action for, for to do things is because the actual stress of 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 just standing up is in itself off putting, and it is it it is it, it it's not a, it's not a comfortable life, you know. It's not a, a, a in no way is it a. I think when we see movies and we see things portrayed, we think oh that we don't get a sense of their of their everyday uh, terror is the exact word yeah terror uh, living in a state it's of terror. Good point because one of the men she saved. Professor Ronald Friend went on to become a social psychi a social psychologist. He's, he studied social psychology. And one of the questions that interest him is, what is it in a person that when they are faced with an evil regime, that they find within themselves the strength, if you like, to stand up to it, you know? And that's a very interesting question about Mary Elms. And it shows her own determination in that she could see you know this is wrong there's work to be done and she actually stood up to it mm -hmm. and she was in a war zone you know for nine years and it's funny the person you read about in the war zone is a very determined 
dogged person with a great sense of self. And then after the war, she got married, as many women did. I mean, in France, women only got the vote in 1946. So it was a very different culture. And the women or the people that knew her after the war described her as um, one description was uh, she was a little mouse sitting in her armchair drinking her tea. And her her son would say there was Mary Ellen's before the war and Mary Ellen's after the war. And she would say herself that it didn't take a toll on her, but you'd have to wonder. Of course, yeah. I mean, they, they didn't have much. They didn't have much language back then either for like PTSD trauma. and trauma yeah, and the rest absolutely. of it. You know, like absolutely. Uh, I do you think there was a kind of a wider? Sorry, I do think there was a kind of a wider acceptance though of um, of especially in the first and second world war of, of women um expanding their roles and going out and doing all of these amazing things, and then having to uh, reinsert themselves back into what was expected of them, which was to go back to being a wife and a mother. Yeah, we no longer, you know, and men are back now, you know, makes makes space the men are home. Time too was really quite a sexist mm. society. Still and is. When Mary got married, it is, it is. Mm-hmm. when Mary got married in 1946, like you had Charles de Gaulle, he said, oh, the women of France, they must make, I can't remember how many million bonnie babies for France, you know, you must repopulate um, the country after the awful casualties and losses of World War Two. And I think a lot of the people, too, um, I found, they didn't want to speak about it. I mean, they did just want to get on with it, Mary Elms included, because um, some of the, the people that Mary Elms saved they said to me, I wouldn't have spoken to you had you come to me 10 years previously. That's now in the, in the you know, the early 2000s because um, it was just locked away in the past. And they're speaking now because they said, uh, we don't want people to say it didn't happen. I, so I think I, that is a huge message. And um, it's so good that she is remembered and the people she saved are remembered. Mm-hmm in um that wonderful pedestrian bridge in Cork. yeah yeah it really it it really is a conversation starter like it'll just people will you know the amount of people will say who's mary alms it means mm-hmm. that it's doing mm-hmm. its job you yes know? yes yeah and it's great there's a little plaque there because mm-hmm. often you have places named after people and they know the name but they don't know the story behind it so it's very important to have just a little description she was you know a volunteer in two wars and saved so many people and um, just on that seeing as it's science week um i tweeted about kathleen lonsdale and somebody said oh yeah is that why there's a lonsdale building in university of limerick and kathleen lonsdale like was a, a pioneering scientist and crystallographer who proved this doesn't I don't understand the full implications of this, but she proved that the Benozine ring was flat and you know was a, a I knew it. I knew she, she Did you know I that? knew Did that she, she, I I knew it was flat. I didn't need her to tell me. I knew. I knew it was flat. I told you. There you go. But, so the next time you go to the Lonsdale building, you know, mm-hmm. remember her and you you but you know all that. I anyway. know, I but know, you know. Sure I knew it. It's like the world, Cloda. Yeah. It's flat. It is like the world yeah. is flat, yeah. that's it exactly. exactly. Yeah. But yeah. that's yeah. why, you know, all these names, even the names of streets, you know, I I think it's you know, so and so lived here. It's very important to say who one yeah. word mm-hmm. men and women, you know. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. 
So I suppose the, the last kind of person that I really want to speak about is um, Mary McSweeney, who has come to, who was, a, was an extremely important woman in her own time, but kind of unfortunately fell behind the achievements of her, of her brother, um, Terence McSweeney, who was Lord Mayor of Cork and died on hunger strike in 1920. Um, and Mary was, uh, Mary and his other sister, Annie, were hugely influential in both the the War of Independence and the um, anti-treaty side of the Civil War. And one of the things that I never knew about um, Mary McSweeney was that she had po- very poor health as a child and, mm. and lost one of her feet um, and had it amputated. Mm. She achieved a, a huge level of schooling for, in my opinion, a, a kind of a, a woman in the early 1900s when going to university wasn't the norm. She went to Cambridge University. Like... Yeah. I just think that's that's absolutely amazing. Um, the very same for- thing struck me, um, you know, to actually, she was late finishing her school because of the amputation of her foot. But like even to have that disability, if you like, she, I didn't know that either. And I just thought she, maybe that, maybe that sharpened her determination, you know, and she did qualify um, with the BA. Uh, she got a BA from UCC. I didn't know that she she had gone to Cambridge as well, and then she went on to teach in English convent schools and in the Isle of Wight. Like so, she was a real educationalist before ever there was her involvement in the political sphere. I but, actually know nothing about her, so you yeah, both can educate yeah. me now. I, I don't know. And she, it. I think her father was was very much the political person in the family, and she herself, I think, was born in England, and they came back to Cork, um, in eighteen seventy nine, I think, and she would have been seven by then, and her father had a snuff and tobacco business. And I think in the end, the fa- it failed and the father immigrated to Australia in 1885 and he died there. So that's that's very sad. But before he had gone, he, he was kind of a, a fervent separatist and Republican. And he had instilled that legacy into his children, you know. Um, so they would have been. Um, she but there's a connection actually with Mary Elms in that Mary Elms's mother was a suffragette herself. And are a suffragist because she wasn't of the militant um, type and she was very much involved in the Munster Women's Franchise League and that's very interesting she would have known so Mary Ellen's mother would have known Mary McSweeney and the two of them were involved in campaigning for votes for women and you'll see um, their signatures on letters campaigning to the MEPs of Munster it's very interesting actually in 1913 um, one of the suffragists from Wales came to Cork City Hall and there was a huge number of people there and part of the reason Mary was was one of the founders but the the movement was founded by unionists so there was the unionist Violet Martin and Edith Somerville and um, so there was a lot of people who who were afraid that this organization was kind of an orange organization so when this woman from Wales took the stage a revolver shot rang out and then there were five more and the whole thing dissolved into chaos and people said oh this is an orange organization you know but Mary was very very clear-eyed about the whole thing she said um, we don't want votes for women as part of the home rule bill we want it as just it's justice for women 
you know. Mm-hmm. So she she was very clear about that. So that was before she resigned from that and then became involved in Easter 1916. Mm-hmm. So Sirka might want to, um, she founded a common Naman branch in Cork. Isn't that right, Sirka? She did, yeah. So she founded, she founded common Naman in Cork in 1914. Oh, Sirka, you're echoing. Just, tur- just mute um, yourself. Is then. that better? That's me. I don't I think. Is it? My, yeah, my thing hopped out a bit there. Ah, okay. Yeah. Sorry. So, um, so Mary played quite a pivotal role in the founding of Common Amon in Cork, um, and the inaugural meeting was actually held in her family home in in, um, in Black Rock. Um, and she, because of Terence's involvement in um, the Irish Volunteers and and um, the political inf- influential sphere in Cork, she was um, involved in the freedom struggle from 1916. So she was sent on kind of dispatch jobs, and she wrote an awful lot about the her regret and Terence's re- regret about the fact that in Cork, um, the rising just was a complete failure. Um, and afterwards, she spoke about um, her her reluctance at which the Cork branch of Common Amon and um, and the IRA um, their reluctance to stand down, I suppose, on the mm. uh, during nineteen sixteen. Because I have a quote from her here, and she says, "Cork, as everyone knows, is built in a hollow, surrounded on all sides by hills, and the Volunteer HQ is in the flat of the city, directly under the big guns all week." Um, all egress was impossible um, and I think that she herself was extremely um, kind of not downtrodden would be the wrong word there but very put 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 back by that mm. um, and soon after she was actually arrested in her classroom the um, arrested in her classroom in front of her students while she was teaching maths um, and the authorities put massive pressure on her and her sister to give them information and to tell them um, Terence's plans. And I think that, um, as we spoke about before in this one of our podcasts about hair hair cutting as a um, yes. retribution of war, yes. they put huge pressure on these Republican these women from Republican families, families. Um, followed them and intimidated them and. Um, Crown forces were extremely persuasive, I suppose, would be the nicest word to use there to try and get information from these women. And these women didn't give it. And then they also went back and did all of the things that women were expected to do at that time, Mm -hmm. you know, um, like including including having it for Mary, having a job, a full time job, doing all of the the responsibilities that, that a woman is expected to do and then being harassed by British soldiers on a fairly regular basis. Like, yeah. Exactly. Um, what struck me I know. about her as well is that, you know, after her her brother's death, she went off to America um, in early, 100 years ago exactly, actually. Well, during early 1921, and she had a seven-month coast-to-coast propaganda tour of America like you know and then she came back and she's she's elected she's one of six women elected to the second doll in June 1921 and there she makes a name for herself for being completely uncompromising I I was talking to David McCullough who's the historian and broadcaster and he's just brought out a a wonderful book for children the great Irish politics book 
and I asked him, you know, who do you admire from history? And he said he really admired the spirit of Mary McSweeney because I suppose in later years she became very uncompromising. But in a exactly 100 years ago next month, she actually stood up on the doll and spoke for two hours and 40 minutes about what on the anti treaty side mm. now she probably lost supporters in the in the process but you cannot fault this woman for standing up and articulating what she believed in you know Clota um now you said that about uh, Mary McSweeney the, the thing that you would probably have said about um, Joan Denise Moriarty and that she said again and again and again was that she would never compromise standards yeah. She would never compromise standards. And, and like, she, she was like, you want me to do this at like, and not have this and this and this? No. And it was that uncompromising. Yeah. Because where are you going to get like in a, in a kind of, in the environment that Mary McSweeney lived in, if you're going to start compromising with an already regressive and oppressive state, you're going to get, you, you're, you might as well, you know, reach for the moon and, and, and hope you get there rather than um, being like, oh sure, I'll meet you at the top of Kilimanjaro. And yes. actually end up in Ross Carberry or something. You know what I mean? <laughs> I know. <laughs> I think it, part of sorry, go on. Yeah, no, go ahead, go ahead. I was just gonna say I think I think one of the things that I find very, very interesting about all of those women TDs was that they were all vehemently anti treaty. The yes. six that were elected to the second oil yes. were yeah. unbelievably anti-treaty. And I have a quote here from um Mary McSweeney and she says, um, you have told us that that it is between the acceptance of this document and war. And I say, let us take war. I am not speaking as an ardent young enthusiast. I'm speaking as a woman who has thought and studied much and realized as only a woman can the evils and the sufferings of war. And I think that um, certainly, as we all know, women have a different experience of war than men. Not only um, are they fighting at home as opposed to fighting on the battlefield, but they're also the ones who have to who have to pick up the pieces um, when the war is over. And I, it's always struck me as so kind of um, interesting that these women were willing to take, as Lloyd George called it, a great and terrible war instead of agreeing to the to the terms of the treaty that were set. Um, even though they knew what was going to happen, like yeah. Mary had lost her brother, she had lost many friends and their husbands and their children, yeah. and yet her and the other women TDs, and actually a huge amount of the women in Ireland at that time were anti-treaty. Um, like Griffiths and Collins wouldn't allow women to vote in the 1921 election because yeah. they knew that it would it was essentially a treaty referendum and it would have turned the tide against the treaty, yeah. and so they said that they couldn't update the electoral rolls in time, which is an absolute lie. No. Um, they did it a hundred percent, yeah. They did it because they didn't want the they didn't want to fail. They didn't want their treaty to not be passed. So and okay, break this down for me now. As a person who is like history, you know, not great with the his especially Irish history. You tell me only men voted for this. Yeah, in in that in that election, yeah. Yeah. It was put to the public. Yeah. So the only men. So this, okay, okay. So, so, so I've just, I've just made Tina rage there now. But I just think that as, as women, as a, as an electoral body, and as these representatives of our state in the Doyle at the time, that they were all anti-treaty. And Mary herself refused to accept, um, refused to to claim allegiance to the the um the Free State, and she continued to claim allegiance to the Second Doyle. Um, and I wonder what was it about 
about Ireland at that time or about these women in particular that they saw a terrible war as an as a the preferable alternative well i suppose well she went on to to form was it um was it corlin Publica, or she she formed a very um extreme organization if you like which ultimately failed uh, Manana Publica, that's what it was. She founded the, it was a very purist Manana Publica. And um, yeah, she eventually all sided with the IRA, if you like, and, and, and violence. Um, but I suppose they could see wh what might happen if if the country, with the, they could see the, um, the difficulties with partition. Um, the other thing, I suppose they had a very idealized, view of Ireland and um, you know they wanted the whole of Ireland so that must be part of it as well um, yeah I wonder what might have happened if if the uh, anti-treaty side had won I wonder too though how acceptant they would be of the different traditions on the island of Ireland you know I, I wouldn't like to have seen that either I would say that they, they mightn't have what do you mean by different editions? Well, I mean the different traditions. I wonder how the, the unionist um, tradition would have been accepted under their vision of a united Ireland. Having said that, I mean, you the know, unionist Mary tradition hadn't had actually formed, uh, founded the um, Munster Women Franchise League with, with two unionist women. Mm -hmm. So it would be very interesting to see it all from their point of view and if women had voted in the, the treaty treaty vote. She refused to engage with the free state um, in any way, shape or form. And her own school, St. Ita's, was persistently underfunded because she rejected all of the funding from the Department of Education, so much so that she wouldn't offer the um, intercert or the leaving cert to her students. She refused to even allow them to sit that state exam and made them do the matriculation exams instead. And that, like, that is... That is serious a grudge. Like that is a serious grudge. Sounds you know what I mean? Authoritarian. To, yeah, to, to, until nineteen fifty four, when her school closed, she refused point blank to allow any of her students to take the um, the leaving certificate examination, and that is dedication. Like that, thirty uh, years. Yeah, like of question that. Yeah. I was no. asked, Claudia, what what do you think your favorite thing is about Mary McSweeney? If you were to pick something. You know, I would question, you know, you just wonder at what point it becomes, do you cut your nose off despite your face? Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? No, so, I definitely agree. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You just, you just wonder, but you, you just have to admire that, uh, the spirit of her. I think the fact that she stood up in the doll exactly a hundred years ago and spoke for two hours and 40 minutes mm -hmm. um, to express what she believed in at a time when the, the six female TDs in the door weren't taken very seriously and a lot of them were you know the relatives of of men who, who had died uh, who had died and that she kept talking I would love to have actually been there to hear that, yeah. you know, that is, that takes guts, mm -hmm. it takes commitment, it takes, you know, you have to know what you're talking about. Yeah, I, they should, 
you know, repeat that. I wonder, yeah, I would it's, love to see that dramatised. I don't know who would stay for the two hours and 40 <laughs> minutes, but uh, that to me is 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 something, something else. You do, as you say, adapt. And mm-hmm. I think what's very, I see campaigners now and people I really admire and people who can see where the power lies and they adapt their message and mm-hmm. they lobby um, for change in a way that it might actually work. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of somebody like, say, Vicky Phelan, mm-hmm. you know, who managed to turn her own office situation mm-hmm. and lobby for change, asking that a tribunal be set up, you know, mm-hmm. to help these women. And then when it was set up, it wasn't fit for purpose. Mm-hmm. We actually reached a stalemate. Mm-hmm. And, and I suppose you have all these women who won't go to that tribunal because... Um, actually, the reason they don't go is that there's no provision if your if your cancer comes again. There's mm-hmm. no provision in the in the tribunal for that. So there's a stalemate. But they are uncompromising. They they have chosen to go to the the harsh surrounds of the high court rather than um, participate in a tribunal, which the government set up as a, as a fop. It's kind. Women. It's kind of like the the yeah. the mother and baby homes report. Oh, stop! Like yeah. that. That is a perfect. I think that's a perfect example of yeah. like, you know, the absolutely of, of don't get going me started. On. On yeah, that. <laughs> let's not get into it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I was born in a mother and baby home. That's a whole other po- podcast. Did I tell you that? No. Oh, yeah. That's well. I could talk about that another time. Yeah. Um, if you ever wanted to, to talk about it, we'd we'd, we'd, we'd yeah. happily facilitate that conversation. If you ever wanted to talk about it. Do you it. know what I I would suggest today? The Tatler Women's Magazine have done various awards, mm-hmm. and their Person of the Year award I think goes to Dr. Mabel Rourke and oh, yeah. Claire McKettrick. I tweeted about them today, actually. Maybe talk Rourke to them. Is, yeah, I, 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 I follow Maybe Rourke for a very long time. Yeah, yeah. I, I'll, and Claire, I'll... the Clan Project. They're mm-hmm. amazing women. Yeah, They're my heroes. Yeah. I would, and I could talk to you. Well, Claire is adopted, and I'm adopted, but I could talk to you as my own experience, if mm-hmm. you liked. You know, mm-hmm. But that's yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but yeah, no, just I think yeah, she did cut cut her nose off to spite her mm-hmm. face. You know, yeah. and I think it and I think that that's... in a happy place to be. Really. Yeah, yeah. But you know, um, this dogged determination is something yeah. that we see across all the women that we've spoken about today, is, from yeah. from theme, our Norman femsol all the way to to um to Mary Maxweeney who who only passed away in 1942. And so we're seeing that a lot of the women that seem to stand out. One of the reasons that they stand out is because they have this stance this determination and they're not going to let the times that they're born in or the circumstances of their life um, move them away from what they wanted to do and what they had planned to do and all the people that they had planned to help. Um, and I think that that's a feature that I've, I've noticed among the four women that we've spoken about. I know we spoke about more, but the four that we've spoken about in depth today. Do you know what it um, was, Sir Do you know what it was? They were ahead of their time. <laughs> they were ahead of their time, girl. That's what it was. They were ahead of their time, girl. So I just wanted to thank. Yeah. Go on. Sorry. No, I was just going to say. I think the other reason, because they did that, there it's recorded. You see, because they stood up. Mm-hmm. I think there were a lot of women quietly working. Quietly, away. yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah that yeah, we yeah. don't know about. Mm-hmm. You know. So it's a question. It's like the twin accident of survival and discovery. Mm-hmm. So. Their words survive and we discover them. Mm-hmm. So that's a factor too. 
they're the ones that stand out. But um, I don't think that's at all the full picture. There were a no, lot of women yeah. paddling away like the swan, you know, yeah. furiously under the surface. Yeah, and it's our job yeah. too, as you know, um, yeah. to root out those people and to root out those exactly. women to um, yeah. to find those little stories that like little stories when it comes up against yeah when it comes up against superhero movies yeah you're not yeah. going maybe you don't find it the most interesting but it's like me with the with the archive like honestly the things that I found the most interesting were the smallest things it wasn't even the thing that didn't impress me wasn't even her ability to put on the 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 ballet it was smaller things about that that made up her who she was and and her um her consistency and all these kind of little things that I admired more than even the the beauty of the dance you know um absolutely um one woman I really admire is God I think it's Bridget Brown it's um Christy Brown's mother Mm -hmm. She was an ordinary woman living in, you know, dire circumstances. I think she had 23 children. And when Christy was born, you know, she said, he's not going into a home, he's my flesh and blood. And then she taught him to read and write. And she helped him express, you know, his artistic talent. Mm -hmm. I think she's an incredible woman, mm -hmm. for example. Yeah, perfect. So I just wanted to thank yeah. Cloda. I just wanted to thank you so much for, for agreeing yeah. to speak to us today. Oh, and pleasure. Just the the wealth of information that you've discovered and that you've collated together in, in your book, um, The Lives of Twenty One of, of the Twenty One Women is just kind of like, as you said, a bare smattering of all of the women that have have lived and died and, and created and and spoke for three hours on this island um, and that it's it's a part of history now thankfully that we are starting to go back into mm -hmm. and I think it's happening kind of across the historical sphere it's not just about as you said at the start these great men of course there will always be places in the history books for the likes of Podrick Pierce and, and James Connolly and um, and Hugh de Lacey and, and all of these amazing oh, men who did amazing yes. things but at the same time, hopefully now and moving forward, there will be just as much, if not more, space given to the amazing women who enabled all of these men to do amazing things and did all of their own amazing mm -hmm. things throughout the history um, of Ireland. And I just wanted to say thank you. And I hope that our listeners enjoyed this podcast um, and we'd be we'd love to have you back again. Um, so just thanks. Yeah. Thank oh, listen, so ladies, fair juice too. It was great to chat to you. And are you in Cork this morning? Are you even together? We're not together, no, because Surf is a bit, um, she's a bit under the weather. Yeah. Um, so, and I'm actually going to Dingle next week and for Dingle Literary Festival. I'm working Fantastic. with them and I'll be meeting um, Michael D. So uh, I didn't, I was like, I also was Excellent. like, mm, maybe it's better that I don't get sick in any capacity no, between no. now and then. <laughs> I imagine if I killed oh, Michael enjoy D. enjoy that and enjoy <laughs> meeting Michael D. Yeah, yeah, that would be great. Michael D, yeah. Um, so I actually wanted to say something there, but now I can't remember what it is, so that's fine. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to thank you too. And oh, I, d I did want to say as a like, Jesus, the wealth of information, like I'd love the two, like I, I, I usually have to rein in Sarka, like she has just so many, she has so many facts. She just goes on and on and on. Sarka. And I feel like, Clodagh, you're also someone who could go on. You've so such a wealth of information, as Sarka said. 
um and it's a pity we like we i'd I, i don't know what format that you could have like days days to learn about things i suppose that's university is it <laughs> yeah 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 but um i hope um people uh, listening to podcasts like this can like have 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 stories and history like this that's a little bit more accessible than um uh, they don't have time to go to university or they don't have time to read Tell your own history. family stories mm-hmm. i would say as well mm-hmm. there are so many stories ask what your aunts did your mothers did your grandmothers mm-hmm. also your grandfathers because we have this we have the story of you know the the big men if you were like mm-hmm. there were so many ordinary men um whose stories are untold mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. tell all yeah. your own stories truth true Okay, ladies, you mind yourself, Sarka. Lovely to make contact with you. And the best of luck with all. If I can do anything or if you need any information, I'll send it on. Perfect. Thank you. That would be great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye.